Hello, I'm Kristen Marshand, and this is the Opiango Line. I'm joined by Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Brian Peterson, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke, all members of the Opiango Readers Theatre. We're here today to offer up for your consideration our annual Remembrance Day show. This year, it's called Off to War, a collection of mainly eyewitness accounts drawn from the Second World War, including a few local voices, such as a young woman from Barry's Bay who wrote to her brother in England, and a young lad from Renfrew County who bamboozled his way into Camp Petawawa at aged 16. We also have something quite unexpected, the voice of a POW, prisoner of war, who describes his daring escape leaping blindly through a speeding railway car window into the wintry darkness of not war-torn Europe, but the Ottawa Valley. But first, let's consider, if only for the next hour, the young men and women living in Renfrew County in 1939 and who ended up going off to war. A few years ago, we did a show called Remember Me, You can still listen to it after this show if you scroll down to our archived shows. In it, we heard from those voices who wrote home to Barry's Bay and told us, intentionally or not, of how their innocence of war was slowly but surely changing into experiences that many could or would not speak about when they came back. Men like Ambrose Burkhat, Wilfred Murray, or men like Philip Bernathke, who never made it back. Today, we thought we'd start with one of those unspeakable war experiences, not usually remembered as a stellar military success, but in many ways an experience that, if it did not cost them their lives, it did ennoble its survivors, if only because they found the courage to survive. In history books, it's known as Operation Jubilee, an amphibious landing on the north coast of France on the beaches of Dieppe. It was a raid designed to test the strength of German coastal defenses, as much as it was a raid intended to alleviate Stalin's impatience with the Allied failure to establish a second front in Europe. But if that was the intention of Operation Jubilee, as August 19, 1942 got underway, it turned out to be a costly blunder. Of the 6,086 men, mostly Canadian, who landed at Dieppe as an Allied force, 3,623 were killed, wounded, or taken prisoner in the first 10 hours. They had been ill-supported and launched against near-impregnable fortifications. Yet more than one of those Canadian soldiers came from Renfrew County. But first, here is a brief description of what happened that day. It was written by Ross Monroe, a Canadian war correspondent who was embedded with those brave Canadians. Even before we put to sea, some had an ominous feeling about what was ahead of them on the other side of the channel. Nobody said anything, but many were wondering how the security had been in the time since July 7th. Did the Germans know the Canadians were going to France, and were they waiting? This was the question being asked in many minds. They were puzzled, too, why the raid had been decided upon so suddenly. They would have liked more time to adjust themselves. I shared most of their mental discomfort. For the first hour or so, I ran over the plan and studied my maps and photographs and was surprised I'd forgotten so much of the detail. I found misgivings growing in my mind. This seemed somewhat haphazard compared with the serene way in which the cancelled raid was mounted. 
The final Dieppe plan was altered only slightly from the one prepared for July. British commandos were assigned to tasks on the flanks previously allotted paratroopers. It was one of the finest evenings of the summer. The sea was smooth, the sky was clear, and there was the slightest of breezes. The ships cleared and the royals went to dinner before making their final preparations. In the wardroom, the officers sat around the tables and dined in navy style as the last sunshine poured through the open portholes. We had a good meal and everyone ate hungrily, for on the way to the boats, all we had had was a haversack fare of a few bully beef sandwiches. The royals' officers were in good spirits at dinner. Looking around the table, you'd never have thought that they were facing the biggest test of their lives. They joked and bantered across the tables and renewed old friendships with the naval officers whom they'd known in practice Dieppe sessions training days before. We were about ten miles from the French coast, and until now there hadn't been a hitch in the plan. The minefield was behind us. The boats filled with infantrymen were lowered as the Emma stopped and anchored. Nobody spoke. Silence was the strict order, but as our boat, which was the largest of the landing craft and was jammed with about 80 soldiers, pushed off from the Emma, a veteran sailor leaned over and in a stage whisper said, Cheerio, lads, all the best. Give the bastards a walloping. Then we were drifting off into the darkness and our coxswain peered through the night to link up with the rest of our assault flotilla. Eyes were accustomed to the darkness now, and we could discern practically all our little craft. The sea was glossy with starlight. The boats plunged along, curling up white foam at their bows and leaving a phosphorescent wake that stood out like diamonds on black velvet. We were about seven or eight miles from Dieppe when the first alarm shook us. To our left there was a streak of tracer bullets, light blue and white dots in the night, and the angry clatter of automatic guns. This wasn't according to plan, and everyone in that boat of ours tightened up like a drum. We kept our heads down behind the steel bulwark of our little craft, but it was so crowded that even to crouch was crowding someone beside you. I sat on a cart full of three-inch mortar bombs. More tracer bullets swept across ahead of us, and some pinged off our steel sides. A big sailor by my side rigged his Lewis gun through a slit at the stern of the boat and answered with a few short bursts. A blob in the night that was an enemy ship, an armed trawler, or more likely an e-boat, was less than 200 yards away. It was firing at half a dozen craft, including ours, which was in the lead at the time. From other directions came more German tracer. There might have been four ships intercepting us. There wasn't much we could do. There isn't any armament on these assault craft to engage in a naval action against e-boats or trawlers. Our support craft didn't seem to be about at that particular time, and it looked as if we were going to be cut up piecemeal by this interception. Our flotilla already had been broken up from the close pattern of two columns we had held before the attack. I blew up my life belt a little bit more. A few more blasts of tracer whistled past, and then there was a great flash and a bang of gunfire behind us. In the flash, we could see one of our destroyers speeding up, wide open to our assistance. It fired a dozen rounds at the enemy ships, and they turned and disappeared towards the French coast. They probably went right into Dieppe Harbor and spread the word that British landing craft were heading in. Our coxswain tried to take us into one section of the beach, and it proved the wrong spot. 
Before he grounded, he swung the craft out again, and we fumbled through the smoke to the small strip of sand which was the Pete's beach. The smoke was spotty, and the last thirty yards was in the clear. Geysers from artillery shells and mortar bombs shot up in our path. Miraculously, we weren't hit by any of them. The din of the German Akak guns and machine guns on the cliff was so deafening you could not hear the man next to you shout. The men in our boat crouched low, their faces tense and grim. They were awed by this unexpected blast of German fire, and it was their initiation to frightful battle noises. We bumped on the beach, and down went the ramp. They plunged in about two feet of water, and machine gun bullets laced into them. Bodies piled up on the ramp. Some staggered to the beach and fell. Bullets were splattering in the boat itself, wounding and killing our men. I was near the stern and to one side. Looking out the open bow, over the bodies on the ramp, I saw the slope leading a short way up to a stone wall littered with Royal's casualties. There must have been sixty or seventy of them, lying sprawled on the green grass and the brown earth. They'd been cut down before they had a chance to fire a shot. A dozen Canadians were running along the edge of the cliff towards the stone wall. They carried their weapons, and some were firing as they ran— Some had no helmets. Some were already wounded, their uniforms torn and bloodied. One by one, they were cut down and rolled down the slope to the sea. I don't know how long we were nosed down on that beach. It might have been five minutes. It might have been twenty. On no other front have I witnessed such a carnage. It was brutal and terrible and shocked you almost to insensibility to see the piles of dead and feel the hopelessness of the attack at this point. There was one young lad crouching six feet away from me. He'd made several vain attempts to rush down the ramp to the beach, but each time a hail of fire had driven him back. He'd been wounded in the arm, but was determined to try again. He lunged forward, and a streak of red-white tracers slashed through his stomach. And I'll never forget his anguished cry as he collapsed on the blood-soaked deck. Christ, we gotta beat him. We gotta beat him. He was dead in a few minutes. For the rest of that morning, one lost all sense of time and developments in the frantic events of the battle. Although the Puig's landing had obviously failed and the headland to the east of Dieppe would still be held by the Germans, I felt that the main attack by three infantry battalions and the tanks had possibly fared better on the beach in front of the town. Landing craft were moving along the coast in relays and the destroyers were going in perilously close to hit the headlands with shellfire. I clambered from one landing craft to another to try to learn what was going on. Several times we were bombed too closely by long black German planes that sailed right through our flak and our fighter cover. Smoke was laid by destroyers, and our planes along the sea and on the beach. Finally, the landing craft in which I was in, with some naval ratings, touched down on the sloping pebble main beach, which ran about 60 yards at that point, to a high sea wall in the esplanade with the town beyond. Smoke was everywhere, and under its cover, several of our ratings ran onto the beach and picked up two casualties by the barbed wire on the beach, lugging them back to the boat. I floundered through the loose shale to the sea wall. There was heavy machine gun fire down the beach towards the casino. A group of men crouched twenty yards away under the shelter of the sea wall. The tobacco fire was blazing fiercely. For a moment there was no firing. It was one of those brief lulls you get in any battle. I thought our infantry were thick in the town, but the esplanade looked far too bare and empty. There was no beach organization as there should have been. 
Some dead lay by the wall and on the shale. The attack here had not gone as planned either. A string of mortar bombs wanged on the esplanade. The naval ratings waved and I lunged back to the boat as the beach battle opened up again. In choking smoke, we pulled back to the boat pool. Then, the German Air Force struck with its most furious attack of the day. All morning long, British and Canadian fighters kept a constant patrol over the ships and the beaches, whole squadrons twisting and curling in the blue cloud-flecked sky. Hundreds of other planes swept far over northern France, intercepting enemy fighters and bombers long before they reached Dieppe. Reconnaissance planes kept a constant lookout on the roads from Amiens and Abbeville and Rouen, where reinforcements could be expected. There were air combats going on practically all morning long. It was the greatest air show since the Battle of Britain in the fall of 1940, and the RAF and the RCAF had overwhelming superiority. The high command had hoped the German air force would be lured into the sky and most of the enemy strength in Western Europe came up. Bullets screeched in every direction. The whole sky and sea had gone mad with the confusion of that sudden air attack, and a dozen times I clung to the bottom of the boat, expecting that this moment was the last, as we were cannoned or another stick of bombs churned the sea. Several landing craft near us blew up, hit by bombs and cannon shells. There was nothing left. They just disintegrated. These craft had been trying to make the main beach again, as we had been, to take off troops on the withdrawal. As we mentioned, among the men who landed at Dieppe that day, a few of the boys hailed from Renfrew County. How they got there and who they were is a story all in itself. And lucky for us, that story was written by one of those boys, John Patrick Grogan. His war memoir, Dieppe and Beyond, was published in 1982, and though it's a book hard to find these days, if your local library doesn't have it, we would encourage you to ask your librarian to find a copy. It's more than a worthwhile read. Take, for instance, its first chapter. One day in March 1940, when the sun was shining, the snow was melting, and Petawawa military camp was filling with fresh activity, Sergeant Kennery of the Lanark and Renfrew Scottish Regiment, came into the barracks with a list of names. Descharm! Grogan! Rickard! Shore! Sydney! Here! We all answered one by one. In quick succession, the five of us were discharged. The certificate read, Honorably discharged, for the reason of being underage. Age of soldier? Sixteen years. Before long, however, <laughs> we were all in uniform again. Wally Descharm was killed in action during the Christmas season of 1943 at San Leonardo near Rotono, Italy. Wally was a company sergeant major in the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment. He was 20 years old. Earl Rickard was killed in action at Dieppe, France on August 19, 1942. Bob Shore, Ed Sidney, and I came home when the war was over. The five of us knew each other in boyhood but Earl Rickard and I were close friends. We enlisted in the militia of Lanark and Renfrew Scottish Regiment. Two nights a week in the armory in Renfrew, we were taught the rudiments of foot drill. When war was declared, we volunteered for active service on September 8, 1939. We were sent to Petawawa. Our unit served as a guard detachment. Rickard and I laughed a lot, and we loved army life. The camaraderie, the sound of barked orders, the commands, marching feet, and bugle calls. 
Our sudden discharge was a bitter disappointment. After receiving our clothing allowance, $27, we said goodbye to our loved ones. Earl's mother wiped tears from her eyes. His sister Regina wept openly. Earl had an aunt in Toronto. We reasoned that Toronto was far enough away to be able to advance our age and enlist again. We arrived in Toronto on a rainy night in the cab of a transport truck. We ate homemade beans and lots of bread and butter at a White Tower lunch. We got a room with a double bed for a dollar at the LaSalle Hotel. In the morning, we found Earl's aunt. Then began the rounds of recruiting offices. As long as it was the Army, we didn't care what unit until we walked towards the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds. We could hear the sound of drums and bugles and marching feet. Then, coming down at us through the Prince's Gate, was the bugle band. The bass drummer wore a shiny leopard skin. Behind the band, a detachment of smart-looking soldiers marched at 120 paces to the minute. We stood with our mouths open. Boy, they know their stuff, exclaimed Earl. And why shouldn't he, said an old man who had came up beside us. That's Headley Busher's Royal Regiment of Canada. He sounded proud of it, and so were we. We decided this would be our regiment too. At the Fort York Armory, we were given an interview with Captain Duncanson. We are not taking any more men at the moment, he said. Try the 48s. But sir, I blurted out, we want to join the Royal Regiment of Canada. Captain Duncanson looked us up and down again, closely. The training we had received at Petawawa was still very much in evidence. We stood ramrod straight. Why, he asked. Earl spoke so enthusiastically of the drummer and the leopard skin and the men who marched to his beat that Captain Duncanson finally gave in. Hold it, hold it, he laughed. <laughs> I'll do what I can to get you in. A medical examination was arranged for the same day. Three days later, we were sworn in at the Fort York Armory by Major West. It was May 1st, 1940. We drew our kit from the stores at the C&E grounds and were assigned to 19th Platoon, Awkward Squad. Company Sergeant Major Chesty Spencer reviewed the Awkward Squad the first morning on parade. Men! You are in the awkward squad, because you are awkward people, because you are bungling people. You are not easy to manage. You there, hold your head up. There's nothing in it. Do your best you can with this lot, Corporal. He strutted away, shaking his head. Those first days were difficult for Earl and me. We had to guard against learning too fast, that we were in constant fear of being asked for our birth certificate. One day, while we were doing our foot drill, Regimental Sergeant Major Gager passed by. Our drill instructor, mistaking him for a commissioned officer, ordered, Eyes right! and was immediately rebuked. Suddenly, Chester Spencer arrived. He stood at attention and respectfully informed the Regiment Sergeant Major that he, the Company Sergeant Major Spencer, was responsible for discipline in Beer Company, and this included the Awkward Company. Then, facing us, eyes bulging, Spencer roared, Awkward squad, dismiss! At that moment, he gained the friendship of every man in the awkward squad. One week later, Earl Rickard and I were welcomed into the 2nd Platoon, B Company, and in no time at all we felt at home. 
B Company was commanded by Major Brian McCool, and Chesty Spencer saw that his commands were carried out. We did maneuvers in High Park, marching behind a band down Young Street. On our off-duty hours, we went to the casino on Queen Street, or dancing at the Palais Royal, and we rode the roller coaster at Sunnyside. When the regiment left Toronto for Camp Borden, we were again witness to tearful partings and thought of our people back home. As the train slowly moved away, a radio from within the station was playing Artie Shaw's Begin to Begin. Twelve days later, we entrained for Halifax, Nova Scotia, where we boarded the Empress of Australia. We moved out of the harbour at noon. It was June 10, 1940. Three days later, we were told of our destination, Iceland. A few days earlier, I had all my hair shaved off, the result of a bet. When we learned of our destination, I became the butt of many jokes. We lived in tents in Iceland. It was wet and cold. We built roads, dug tank traps, and helped to build a landing strip. There was guard duty at camp and at an outpost on the top of a mountain. There was weapons training and lectures. We fired the new Bren gun, the Boyce anti-tank rifle, and the two-inch mortar. Rickard claimed that for himself. He had a good eye and became the best mortar man in the regiment. Company Sergeant Major Spencer was quick to recognize this. My man Rickard can put a mortar bomb in your ass pocket, Chesty proudly announced, and then threw out a challenge that Earl could outshoot any man in the regiment. A Company's Sergeant Major Tony Anthony was not one to turn down the challenge. He and Chesty often argued about who was the best bugler. They had both been buglers as boys. The two companies were stationed about a quarter mile apart. Sometimes the regular bugler for B Company would hand over his bugle to Chesty Spencer to sound the last post. I'll show Anthony how to blow a bugle, Chesty would say. He would time it in a few seconds early to give Sergeant Major Anthony a chance. Anthony always knew from the sound of the bugle being cleared when it was Chesty. He never missed answering. And in our tents, we would be silent as we could as we listened to the beautiful call signaling the end of the day. One day, Chesty Spencer said to me, You know, Grogan, the bugle calls are a great thing. When the bugle calls, you know you are wanted. Even if it's only for defaulters, somebody still wants you. Tony Anthony took up the challenge for the mortar shoot, and he put up, My man Brooks! The rules were made, and the two company sergeant majors, each contestant would fire three bombs. The one who came closest to the target would be declared winner. Our cook, Snipe Crawford, took the bets. Neither Rickard nor Brooks was consulted. It didn't occur to the sergeant majors to ask them. Our quartermaster, Ashby, provided three bombs. The A Company quartermaster did likewise. Both worried about how they would account for them on the day of reckoning. There was a holiday atmosphere on the ranges that day. We forgot the cold weather. Snipe Crawford was busy taking bets and ladling out hot marmite from a huge pot on the back of the platoon truck. I never knew Crawford's first name, (laughs) but Snipe suited him. He had bulgy eyes, a long hooked nose, and lifted his feet high when he took each step. Spencer won the toss and named Brooks first to fire. Anthony took a position behind Brooks, giving him last-minute instructions. Company quartermaster Ashby paced up and down, murmuring, Oh, how will I account for the extra bombs? 
Ah, let me worry about that, Chesty said, pointing to the quartermaster in direction of the platoon truck. Get yourself a nice cup of hot marmite. Crum! The first bomb was fired. All eyes were on Brooks. Yow! Crawford, watching the shot, had spilled hot marmite on Ashby's hands. God's teeth, moaned uh, Company Sergeant Anthony. You're making my man nervous. Anybody got a smoke? asked Rickard. Many hurried to oblige. Chesty Spencer lit the match. You nervous? Who, me, Rickard said, blowing smoke in the air? Nah. Good man, good man, said Chesty. Brooks let go his second and third bombs. Two were dead on target, one just off. Anthony puffed himself out and with his arm around Brooks grinned at Spencer. Rickard took up his position, cigarette still in his mouth, smoke curling up in front of his face. He fired quickly. Each of his three shots was a direct hit. Big John Newman and Elmer Sweet hoisted him onto their shoulders and marched around jubilantly, with Earl yelling to be, Put down! Put me down! All in all, it was a great day. When the time came to leave Iceland, we traveled by bus to Reykjavik and boarded the Empress of Australia a second time. We would join the second division in England. Earl and I stood on deck and talked of going on leave in England. At Aldershot, England, we were met by the band of the Essex Scottish Regiment and piped up Gun Hill to Mandora Barracks. It was November 4, 1940. We continued training, maneuvers, route marches, endurance tests, parade ground drills, weapons training. Earl and I went on leave together and went to many dances. He was a good dancer and loved a jitterbug. Often, when he had a good partner, the other dancers would form a ring, clap to the beat, and let Rickard and his girl do the dancing. Earl met a lovely girl, Mary Glynn. She was in the Women's Land Army, and her home was in London. She was 18. Soon, she and Earl were in love. Mary Glynn was killed during an air raid in 1944 while on a weekend visit with her parents in London. She was not yet 21. I was transferred to C Company and saw less of Earl. The regiment was moved to the south coast and our companies were stationed about 10 miles apart. I was in the village of Breedy near Hastings. One night I went to a dance in Hastings. It was on the second floor of a building and as I climbed the stairs I could hear the band playing the 12th Street Rag. Hands were clapping and as I came through the door into the hall I could see Earl and Mary Glynn ringed by the other dancers. They looked so happy. Earl let out a whoop when he saw me, and they both rushed over. Later, we gave each other what news we had of home, and I danced with Mary while the band played that lovely weekend. She asked many questions of Earl, and on the way back to camp that night, I wondered if they might marry. I became sick and was hospitalized, and I went on to a convalescent depot at Brixham in Devon, and from there to her holding unit at Whiteley. I rejoined the regiment at Littlehampton. At the first opportunity, I looked up my friend Earl Rickard. It was August 17, 1942. He was on guard duty at B Company headquarters. Again we talked of home and news received, and he of Mary Glynn. We agreed to meet the next night for a beer. But I never saw my friend alive again. Earl Rickard was killed by enemy fire on the beach at Poise near Dieppe, France, two months before his 19th birthday. Later that day, I became a prisoner of war. 
It was August 19, 1942. John Patrick Grogan went off to war, but upon landing in Dieppe, he soon found himself a prisoner of war. And as everybody knows who's ever been a prisoner of war, and there were more than a few locally, Donald McRae from Whitney comes to mind, a POW's first duty is to escape. It doesn't matter which Army, Navy, or air crew you belong to, it's your sworn duty. So it should come as no surprise that a few German POWs managed to do it during the Second World War. But what might come as a huge surprise, if not a downright shock to some here in Renfrew County, is that one of those German POWs who did escape did so, right here in our very own backyard. In a little-known episode of Ottawa Valley Wartime History found in an even more obscure war memoir than John Patrick Brogan's Dieppe and Beyond, here's an English translation taken from that obscure war memoir written by Franz von Vera. He was a German Luftwaffe pilot captured after his plane was shot down in England. Ultimately, he was packed off to the colonies and landed in Halifax, where we pick up the story. The prisoners were shepherded out of the other end of the building. From there they proceeded, officers to the left, men to the right, between long double rows of armed soldiers, to two trains, each of fourteen coaches standing one behind the other in a siding. In the coach in which Von Vera was to travel, there were thirty-five other prisoners and twelve guards. A third of the coach was taken up by the guards, the remaining two-thirds being allocated to the prisoners. There were far more seats than prisoners, and they were able to spread themselves in comfort. There was a central gangway with comfortable seats arranged in pairs back to back on either side. The guards were members of the Veterans Guard of Canada. Three were on duty at a time. They stood in the gangway, one at either end of the section occupied by the prisoners, the third in the middle. They were armed with pistols. The coaches were heated and had double windows for insulation against the cold. One army blanket was loaned to each prisoner. Von Vera sat by a window and Manhart beside him. Facing them were Wagner by the window and Wilhelm next to the aisle. The train left Halifax at about 7.30 p.m. It was snowing heavily. The outer windows were almost completely covered with ferns of frost on the inside. There was a thick layer of ice on the bottom of the frame between the inner and outer windows. The prisoners could see the blazing lights of Halifax through the small areas of glass that were frost-free. Floodlit shops and departmental stores, the uncurtained windows of office blocks, street lamps, winking neon signs, a myriad of glistening snowflakes slanting across the dazzling headlamps of automobiles. The war, Europe, home were far, far away. Soon after the train started, a Canadian officer entered the coach and gave the following orders, which Wagner interpreted. Prisoners would not be permitted to move from that coach to the next. Prisoners could move within the coach, but in each bay of four seats, not more than one man was to stand up at one time. Anybody wishing to go to the toilet was told to hold up his hand. Prisoners would be escorted to the toilet one at a time in turn. Windows were not to be opened or tampered with. The guards knew what to do if they saw anyone violating this order. At night, after the seats and the luggage racks above them had been converted into bunks, there was to be no further movement of prisoners about the coach. The officer announced that meals would be served to prisoners where they sat. The coach became unbearably hot. Von Vera sat in his shirt sleeves next to the ice-covered window and perspired like a stoker. It took the prisoners some time to find an equable setting of the heat regulators. The guards seemed as indifferent to the intense dry heat inside the coach as they were to the intense dry cold outside it. 
Several hours later, German orderlies came in and erected in the bays the long, collapsible tables that were stored under the windows. One of them handed out thick slices of new white bread, liberally spread with butter. Other orderlies carried in large containers of food. Grinning broadly and winking, they whipped off the covers. There were exclamations all over the coach. Potatoes fried crisp and brown in bacon fat, baked beans with tomato sauce, thick slices of fried sow belly. Afterwards, there was canned fruit. And coffee, not acorn airsats with saccharin, not concentrated coffee and chicory diluted from a bottle as in British camps, but real coffee made from coffee beans, black, piping hot, sweetened with sugar to taste. After the meal, the prisoners were in a benign and expansive mood. So this was Canada. Most of the men eyed their guards with a new tolerance, amusing interest. Von Vera was tickled to see that one good meal had been enough to undermine the determination of half a dozen escapers, men with no experience who had talked about escape ad nausea during the crossing. Good-natured extroverts that they were, the guards responded at once to the more friendly atmosphere and were drawn into the conversation of various groups through prisoners with a knowledge of English. It soon became known that the German officers were being taken to a new camp in the bush on the north shore of Lake Superior, Ontario. This piece of information was vital to von Vera. It meant that the train would in all probability pass through Montreal and Ottawa, and according to Wagner, the best place to escape from the train would be between those two cities, for the Canadian-USA border, the River St. Lawrence, was within a day's hitchhiking distance. There were other places along the route where the U.S. border would be close. For instance, in northwest New Brunswick, at an early stage of the journey, the railway ran near the border to the state of Maine. But for several reasons, Von Vera regarded this an unpromising place. All the other would-be escapers seemed to know about it, and any who had serious intentions would almost certainly try there. No doubt the train guards and the border patrols of both countries would be particularly alert while the train ran near the New Brunswick Maine border. Even if an escaper succeeded in crossing into Maine, the country was wild and snowbound, and the chances were he would get lost in the vast forests and perish from a combination of exposure and starvation. Von Vera decided that it would be best to try to escape as late as possible in the journey. This would give a chance for the excitement of any other escape attempt to die down. Above all, he did not want to get off the train in the backwoods. The point where he escaped must be reasonably close to the U.S. border, within reach of main roads, and not too far from human habitation. The obvious choice was somewhere between Montreal and Ottawa. There was no chance of getting out of the lavatory window. The door was wedged wide open, and a guard stood near the doorway all the time the prisoner was inside. It would have to be the coach window, but with a guard standing only a few yards away, this looked impossible. The attempt would have to be made while the train was in motion. As soon as it stopped, at signals or in stations, the three guards on duty in the coach were immediately on the alert, and other guards kept both sides of the train under observation. The other prisoners would have to stage a diversion at the critical time for the benefit of the three guards on duty. A quarrel farther along the coach might be the thing. Owing to the height of the window above the floor and the narrowness of the aperture, he could not jump out feet first, but would have to dive out head first. But to do so while the train was traveling at speed would be suicidal. He would have to choose a moment when the train was traveling slowly, preferably just after it started following a halt. He would need the cover of darkness, the best time would be shortly before dawn. But how was he to get the windows opened unnoticed? He observed that when the train halted for any length of time, the heat inside the coach partly melted the frost on the inner panes and the ice in the frame between them. 
After a long stop, it should be possible to open the inner window fairly easily. If he opened it just a little way, less than a centimeter would do, the heat from the carriage would melt some of the ice on the window frame between the two windows and make it possible to open the outer window. After the next long halt, this plan was put into effect. Wagner stood up and kept an eye on the guards, while von Vera, hidden by the backs of the seats, knelt down in front of the window and raised it a quarter of an inch. He wedged it with paper in case the vibrations of the train closed it again. Thereafter, whenever a guard happened to pass by the bay in which they were sitting, von Vera or Wagner would lay his arm negligently along the windowsill, thus concealing the opening. During the next long halt, they had the satisfaction of seeing water from the melting ice trickle from the gap. The volume of ice between the windows was greatly reduced in the next 24 hours. The process of freeing the frame would probably be accelerated if the coach temperature was raised to maximum. Von Vera therefore arranged with the other prisoners to open all heat regulators to full as soon as the train left Montreal. There were several other difficulties to overcome. How to keep watch on three guards at once and to open the window when their attention was distracted. How to conceal the open window. How to shut both windows afterwards, for it would make all the difference if his disappearance were not discovered for some time. He must be wearing his overcoat when he dived out, but how, having been sitting in his shirt sleeves, could he put it on without arising the guard's curiosity? An escaper must have luck, and luck solved most of these problems for Von Vera. The train reached Montreal late the following night. There was a long halt during which the heat was cut off while the locomotive was changed. The temperature in the coach dropped rapidly, and thus it was quite natural for the regulators to be fully opened when the heating was reconnected. At the evening meal that night, they had tomato soup, goulash, and a whole case of dessert apples. The prisoners were starved of fresh fruit, and they ate the lot. This surfeit of apples following the unaccustomedly rich and plentiful food of the past 24 hours proved too much for their systems. In von Vera's coach, from midnight onwards, there was a long queue for the toilet, and some of the traffic had to be diverted to the guard's toilet at the other end of the coach. The three guards on duty were highly amused. Their attention was diverted, and at times there was only one guard left in the coach. In spite of the stifling heat in the coach, one or two of the prisoners, white-faced and shivering from sickness, wrapped their coats or blankets about them and sat hugging their stomachs. Von Vera was able to put on his overcoat without arousing the slightest suspicion. Afterwards, he sat with his head in his hands. The guards were not expecting any of the prisoners to escape in their present condition. But the train would not slow down. It went on and on exasperatingly at high speed. It was hours before the brakes were applied with a gradually increased pressure that indicated a coming halt at a station. Through his fingers, von Vera glanced at his three companions. All were wide awake and looking at him questioningly. Manhart and Wilhelm sat facing one another in the seats beside the gangway, each watching a guard. Their thumbs protruded from the blankets above their knees. Von Vera watched those thumbs. One thumb was horizontal, the other vertical. Now both were sticking up. Von Vera stood up, opened out his blanket, and shook it. Wagner knelt down behind it in front of the window. A second later, he was back in his seat. Von Vera finished folding his blanket and sat down again. The inner window was wide open. No word had been spoken. The train stopped at a station. The remaining ice on the window frame and the frost in the glass were now fully exposed to the heat of the carriage. The guards stretched their limbs on the platform. The frost quickly melted on von Vera's outer window. Through it, he could see their silhouettes massive against the station lights. 
If he could see them, they could see him. All the other windows were pearl gray and opaque from the frost. His was black and must be noticeable as a gap in a row of teeth. Would the guards spot it? The minutes dragged interminably. The halt was much too long. A bell clanged. The engine whistle sounded. The guards climbed aboard, banging the snow off their boots on the steps. Two of them got in the prisoner's end of the coach and had to walk back down the gangway to their seats. They would have to pass the defrosted window. Von Vera held his breath, keeping his head in his hands, peering between his fingers. The train was already moving. The first guard passed by, looking straight ahead. The second approached more slowly. He was feeling his way. His spectacles were misted, and he was squinting over the rims. He passed by. Von Vera glanced at his friends. They were ready. There were several prisoners now with raised hands, for during the halt there had been no visits to the toilet. A guard escorted the first man out. Two guards were left. The train clanked and lurched over points outside the station. It was gathering speed rapidly. Manhart's thumb was up. Wagner, holding two corners of his blanket in his lap, looked at Von Vera in anxious inquiry. Von Vera nodded. Wagner stood up and opened out the blanket. Wilhelm slid along into Wagner's corner seat. Masked by the blanket, Von Vera stood up, caught hold of the outer window, and jerked upwards. It did not move. Another fierce jerk and then a steady, sustained lift. The window opened smoothly. A rush of cold air pressed the blanket against Wagner's body. He continued to shake the corners up and down, looking up the coach towards the two guards. Von Vera felt the icy blast on his face, heard the unexpectedly loud and hollow beat of the wheels over the rail joints. Snowdrifts flashed by at a terrifying speed. The train was still accelerating. It was sheer madness. Suicide. He couldn't possibly do it. The next moment, Wilhelm saw von Vera's jackboots disappear through the middle of the open window. For a split second, which he will never forget, he saw von Vera's body, rigid, arms straight out above his head, suspended almost horizontally a foot or two outside the coach. It dropped back and was gone. There was nothing but the icy draft and the whine and the beat of the wheels on the rails. Wilhelm shut the outer and inner windows and slid back along the seat. Wagner folded the blanket deliberately, slowly, and sat down. No word was spoken. All three were aghast, incredulous. A few brief seconds ago, von Vera had been sitting there with his head in his hands. Now he was gone. The three of them watched ferns of frost sprout rapidly over the window. Inside a minute, the glass was completely covered. It was as though the window had never been opened. They never saw von Vera again. They had not even had time to wish him luck. At daybreak, Major Kramer, who was officer in charge of the prisoners in that coach, walked down the gangway to see how the men who had been ill during the night were getting on. When he reached the bay occupied by Wagner, Manhart, and Wilhelm, he paused. All three were lying in their bunks. Von Vera's was empty. He raised his eyebrows interrogatively. Wagner nodded. Kramer passed on, smiling. It was not until late the following afternoon that von Vera's absence was discovered. The train was then several hundred miles from the point where he had dived out of the window. Von Vera was good on his word. Under cover of darkness, he managed to get to Cornwall to escape across the St. Lawrence River into Upper New York State. Prior to the Pearl Harbor attack on December 9, 1941, America had remained neutral during the first two years of the Second World War. So, for von Vera's purposes, the good old U.S. of A. was as good as Switzerland. 
He therefore happily returned to Germany, took up his Luftwaffe duties once again, wrote his memoir, but alas, was shot down a second time, becoming yet another fatality of the war. Of course, men being men like to think of war as all about them. But as we women know, war is equally about women, and not just as mothers, wives, sisters, or girlfriends, but especially in the Second World War, as active participants with more than a passing notion of the human risk of death and suffering that war entails. Here's one woman's story about what she saw when some of those wounded men came back from Dieppe and the thousand and one other battles that happened individually to those young men who went off to war. Her name is Elaine Wright, and she was a Canadian nurse who went off to war around the same time von Vera was escaping Canada. She arrived in Britain near the beginning of the war and was cute enough to figure out that not all males sent home had to go through the military censor. One of our nurses is going home, and I am asking her to take this with her and mail it in Canada. It will get there much quicker, and I might be able to tell you a few things I otherwise couldn't. I received another letter from you today, Mom, and was very glad to get it. I expect some more will arrive tomorrow. To begin at the beginning, we were on the Pasteur, and it is a lovely boat. There were three other boats with us, all troop ships, one Dutch battleship, the Revenge, and two cruisers. The war cruisers were the sinister-looking boats. Our escort left us about halfway over, and the convoy, do not mention this to many people as it is very important, from this side was to meet us in a day or two, but we missed it and came in alone. Our last day out, we met a convoy going to Canada, and it was a wonderful sight, right on the horizon. Four planes came swooping down on us and kept circling and dipping over us. We were thrilled. They were a bit worried about us one day, as a boat was hit 25 minutes sailing distance behind us, but we knew nothing about it until later. The Camerons of Canada was the Scotch regiment on board, also artillery, engineers, and forestry. I've sent you the pictures they took on board. Pick out Brigadier Phelan. He's Scotty's uncle, the one who took us to dinner, and he's been up visiting here several times and takes great interest in all of us. He is stationed in London. We went up the Clyde as far as Garak, and the whole river is filled with boats from canoes to ocean liners. I don't know how they all got in. We couldn't see anything coming down as it was dark, and I think I told you everything anyway. We are stationed at Marston Green, but do not put that in any letters. We are really just outside the village. There are planes flying around all day long from early in the morning, as there are about four or five aerodromes within a very small radius of us, say six miles, and one is a training center. There are also some bomber factories and other factories. I don't know just what they are. Uh, you see, if you ask any questions, nobody knows anything. Did I tell you that one afternoon, Sister Kennedy Reed and I were cycling along this road and a plane dropped down? For a minute, we thought it was going to land, but it went right over our heads with, I'm sure, less than two yards to spare. Yes, the people talk with quite an English accent and they find some of our expressions amusing. I will never get used to hearing a big, well-built man saying, ta-ta, and oh my dear, it sounds so sissified. The chaplain on the ship was with the Forestry Corps, I believe, and his name was Bennett's or something like that. That was all I could find out, but I liked him very much. Reverend Mr. Jones, Captain Jones now, from Calvary Church, Montreal, was up here on a visit. He was on the ward, and when he left, 
he asked if I had ever been at his church, so I told him I went all the time for the year and three months I worked at the Western. He was quite pleased. He knew several of the girls here. No, I wasn't much impressed with the country at first, but it was about the worst time of the year to see it. I'm beginning to appreciate it now, and I'm sure it's going to be beautiful in the summer. No, I haven't been in an air raid shelter yet, but haven't had any need to. The girls that arrived here first had raids every night, but we haven't had any since we came. An incendiary went through the roof of one of the huts, but did no damage. We've heard them in the distance and heard the guns, and one bomb landed about three miles away once, made things on the table jump around a bit, but it didn't bother me at all. I'd better tell you about the hospital. It's built in an oval with the huts opening into the center. There are 18 huts altogether. One is the orderly room and one the kitchen. Some of the others are being used temporarily as the men's quarters, men's mess, dispensary, quartermaster stores, laboratory, sergeant's quarters, and mess. We have patients in six huts at present. Each hut has 36 beds, but can hold 40 more easily. We are supposed to be a 600-bed hospital. We are really well equipped, have good operating room and x-ray department. I've been getting a daily paper, and so I've got the news that way. The wards have radios now, given by the Red Cross, and so we hear it on the radio, too. The paper only costs a penny a day, and I think it is worth it. We are well organized here for air raids, and the wards are well equipped for incendiary bombs. We are going through the gas chamber tomorrow, and have had a couple more lectures on it. Nothing is being left to chance. There are several gas detectors around, and well watched. The general impression just now is preparedness for the invasion attempt very shortly. Whether or not it will really come, no one knows, but the whole country is being prepared. With the system of spotters, fire watchers, home guards, etc., it's hard to imagine they would get very far if they did try to invade. Now, for the food questions. Some foods are hard to get, others not too bad. In the village, we can buy a quarter pounds of biscuits only, when they have them, which is not always. Fruit is practically impossible to get. I have occasionally bought apples, but they taste half frozen, and it's only sometimes that they are in stock. The stores here have canned goods, but they say when their stock runs out, they can get no more. But they've managed this long, so I suppose they will get along somehow. Milk and eggs are hard to get. Cream is unheard of. Chocolates are scarce. We are rationed, of course, but our meals are not too bad, though very much alike. It is always beef in some form, stew very often, and the vegetable almost always carrots. Desserts are bread pudding, rice pudding, or jam pie. Occasionally, we've had apple pie from canned apples. For breakfast, we can have porridge or cornflakes, which is extra bought with our mess fees, toast, tea, sausage some days, very fat bacon other days, and jam. Sometimes we have prunes and apricots with dessert. But in Birmingham the other day, I had roast chicken and paid for it, but it was good. The only thing I really miss a lot is my breakfast with fruit, coffee, and egg. You asked about the patients, but there's not much to say about them. I haven't been looking after any but sick officers, and I'm now with the nurses and a couple of English girls who have had their appendixes out. Almost all of the patients get up, and about half are to be boarded back to Canada. A lot of lead swingers among them. A lead swinger is one who complains of something he hasn't got. In other words, there's nothing wrong with them except the desire to get out of the army. I come off night duty March the 8th and I'm going to London and then further south to see fall. He is at Brighton now, but might be back in Cheam by then. Well, I think I've told you all the things I shouldn't and hope you get this safely. 
I haven't said what I've been doing lately, but we'll write another letter and mail it. Love to all, Elaine. P.S. I'm very glad to get any letters, even if it is about ordinary, everyday things. Of course, not everybody gets to go to the actual front. Some work essential services on the home front. Nurses, doctors, technicians, craftsmen, even teachers sometimes conserve a war effort by staying home, if only to keep morale up by writing to their loved ones who have to brave the firing line. Take Teresita Murray. When the Second World War broke out in 1939, she was a 17-year-old schoolgirl living in Barry's Bay. By 1943, she was teaching school at Cross Lake, where her father, Tom Murray, and her uncle, Mick Murray, had their sawmill. Still, she considered it more than just a wartime duty to write her older brother, Michael James, who everybody called MJ. He had already joined up, but because of his exceptional mathematical skills, he was trained as an RCAF navigator, and once he landed in England, MJ was quickly taken up by RAF Bomber Command as one of its famed pathfinders. They led each and every nighttime bombing raid straight up what was then called the Ruhr Express. By strategically dropping marking flares that would encircle their intended target, all the bomber crews that flew behind the pathfinders could better see where to unload their firepower. It was something Teresita knew little about. And indeed, if she had known, it probably would have made her own letter-writing job a lot more difficult. In many ways, the boys on the front didn't want their sisters or mothers, girlfriends or wives, knowing anything about the dangers they faced. They just desperately wanted to hear what was going on back home in Barry's Bay. And who could write, as Teresita did to her brother MJ, if she had known that one out of every two pathfinders never came back? From those midnight missions. To RCAF Flying Officer MJ Murray, J 27476, Number 10 Operational Training Unit, Abingdon, England. From Miss Teresita Murray, Cross Lake, Ontario, Canada. October 14th, 1943. Dear MJ, your very welcome letter came last week to Casey. And, of course, as usual, we were glad to hear from you. We felt rather badly to think that you had to write for cigarettes. I guess we don't realize how difficult it is to get things over there and the price of them. However, I think you will be receiving them from now on, along with food parcels. Everything is as usual around here. I suppose you heard in some of the letters of our policeman leaving. Jimmy Maloney was the chief cause in getting him out. We don't know who his successor will be. Since Danny left, Dowdle is our driver. Daddy makes good use of him also. He is not bad considering he is just starting. He took us to Cumbermere on Sunday eve. Tommy M is being married on Monday. I got a bid, so I guess I'll go, despite the fact that it is on a Monday. The school board will just have to give us a holiday, which I will take if they don't. It is going to be a very quiet affair. Arnie is to be the best man. Gordy is still around the camp. It sure is queer that he can escape the army. He isn't doing very much as usual. Casey says that he is trying to get into the camp as clerk. However, Tommy Jordan would make a much better one, I'm sure. School is going fine so far. 
I have lost two more pupils, making 18 all told now. It won't be long before the Christmas concert will be getting warmed up. I guess Mrs. Charles Hildebrandt will have to get her vocal cords into condition, not to mention Charles, of course. Did you know of the sinking of the St. Croix? Mrs. Post's brother was one of the officers who went down. It certainly was not much of a help to her. Well, as news doesn't seem very plentiful, I think I will sign off. Love, Teresita. To RCAF Flying Officer M.J. Murray, J-27476, Number 570 Squadron, England. From Miss Teresita Murray, 97 Western Avenue, Ottawa, Canada. February 8, 1945. Dear MJ, I have been intending to write you every night this week, but something always turned up, and of course letters were not answered. I do hope you had a nice visit to Ireland. You will be able to match Peter Drone's stories when you come back to this side. I do hope you mention the fact that you do know Pete, as I'm sure his name must be a byword over there since 1918. It was nice to have Jay Cavanaugh with you. I have just finished a letter home and one to Danny. My letters were getting pretty few and far between, so I decided it was time to write a few. We are kept on the go here all time. Last weekend, I went to Brockville. The girl that boards with me comes from there, so I went to her home. I had a very nice time. On Monday eve, the separate school teachers entertained at the chateau for a Miss Ryan who is attached to the normal school. She is taking Miss Clifford's place. She died a year or so ago. On Tuesday night, Daddy came down and we both went to the hospital to see Uncle Mick. He's getting along fairly well. However, he expects to be there for some time yet. His face is going to be a bit disfigured, but I guess as long as he doesn't have the pain, he doesn't mind. He also takes great pride in visiting the other patients. There is no doubt but that he will keep them entertained, telling them Josh Billings' stories, not forgetting Herman Towns. He seems quite contented, so I guess that is the best place for him until he is well recovered. I hear Mike Burns is stationed here in the base post office. No doubt you were interested in the North Grey elections. McNaughton didn't have much of a show. There's to be a general election sometime this spring. The way things look just now, the Liberals will have a tough battle. The other night at our dinner, there were several priests from St. Pat's College at it. Father Pupor, Bannam Conway, Corsican and Cousineau. I was talking to Father Cousineau for a few minutes. Father Pupor is the head of our federation for the city. He is really a man of action. Daddy comes down every week to see Uncle Mick, and we usually go out to the hospital together. He will be going to Toronto next week as the session is to open. It will be an interesting few weeks, I'm sure. Well, as I have some schoolwork to get done, I'd better sign off and get busy. Next week brings Valentine's Day, but of course, they expect some kind of celebration and decorations. I hope all is well with you, and we will keep on praying. Lots of love, Teresita. P.S. Jimmy Mack's stay in the hospital was very short. 
It seems he received a lot of flowers from businessmen in Toronto. At least, as he says. You can picture Jimmy laid out with the flowers all around him. He will have to get into shape for the St. Pat's concert, as it would not be a success without him. Luckily, M.J. Murray did come back after the war was over. He returned to Barry's Bay late in the summer of 1945, rarely to talk about his war experience. It's little wonder. Still, most of us who are innocent of war are curious about what it must feel like to be in a war, what it must feel like to actually do the job that men like M.J. Murray or Donald McRae did, or indeed what part those hundreds of other young local men and women had to play after they went off to war sometime between 1939 and 1945. Well, here's a curious first-hand account that details exactly how RCAF flying officers like M.J. Murray, spent their days leading up to each night's bombing raid. It's captivating for what it says, but it's more extraordinary because of what it doesn't say, or what must have been going through the minds of those young men as they carried out their seemingly monotonous wartime tasks. The list of crows who were on was just coming over the phone from the squadron leader. Everyone was listening intently as the names were repeated. Brown, A. Apple, Gardner, C. Charlie, Leach, D. Donald, Parker, F. Freddy. That was all I wanted to know. I didn't wait to hear the rest of the list, but set off to the mess for lunch. As I walked, I thought how insipid life would be were it not for the pleasure of eating three or four times a day. Back at the mess, the first thought was mail, and everyone was eagerly looking for the white of an envelope showing in the top of his letterbox. If there were none visible, he would always feel inside before giving up hope. Surprising how important a letter is. I was lucky and took mine into the dining room to read while waiting in the soup queue. There was time after lunch for a game of snooker and perusal of the London dailies, or possibly a few rounds of hearts or knock rummy. Nobody discussed the coming operation, the only mention of it being a casual, Are you working tonight? and the nod or monosyllable in reply. The ones who were not on would be off on the afternoon bus to town, or possibly out to the golf course or into the hills on bicycles. Many would spend the evening in the murky but convivial atmosphere of the Black Bull pub. The navigator had to be at the hive by 1,400 hours to be told the target and the route to be taken, so leaving the rest to enjoy another hour's relaxation, I toddled off. Then followed a busy time when tracks and distances were worked out, approximate magnetic courses, and estimated times of arrival at the turning points were computated, and various other bits of secret gen were put to use. Even after dozens of trips, the thrill of drawing those route lines on the charts never lessened, and we showed as much enthusiasm as a family planning its summer motoring tour with the aid of coloured gasoline maps. At 1,500 hours, all the crews had to be in the main lecture room for the briefing. That's where the general instruction takes place. So, a few minutes before time, we left the hive and headed for the main building. Promptly on time, the wing commander called out the names of the captains who answered for the crews. Then, quite unemotionally, he announced, The target for tonight is Dieselberg, and it's a very large effort, 850 planes altogether. We'll hear from intelligence first. 
Then, the intelligence officer, a quiet, inoffensive little man with horned-rimmed glasses, spoke his piece. He told us what we were to aim at, the importance of the target and the need for definite identification and accurate bombing. He told us our time on the target, the color and position of the indicator flares to be dropped by the Pathfinder planes, where to expect enemy fighters, and the locations of ACAC concentrations. He gave us a lot of other useful information which might be valuable in an emergency. Next came the Met Man. From him, we got a complete description of the weather conditions on the way out, at the target and coming back. He warned us of icing conditions and dangerous cloud formations over which we should have to fly. He told us the estimated winds, the temperatures and atmospheric pressures, and showed us the synoptic chart, that maze of colored lines which reveals so much to the meteorologist. We heard from the navigation officer and the bombing and signals leaders, and when all had been told, the wing commander spoke again. All crews to be at the crew room by 21.30, at the aircraft by 22.15, and takeoff starts at 23.00. Good luck. That was all. The crews then went into separate huddles to discuss the effort among themselves. Pilots and navigators had to decide on rates of climb, heights and airspeed. Bomb aimers and wireless operators had their contributions to make, and even the gunners were chiming in. It was very much like a football team talking over its strategy, only this time the game was being played for life itself. The visiting team just had to win. There was still quite a lot to be done, especially by the poor, overworked navigators, so off we went to complete the many details of the flight plan. When this was done, we packed our maps and charts, instruments, computators, books of tables, and other accessories in our green canvas sacks, and set course for the mess. Operational supper was to be served at 1945, so there was plenty of time. Some of the boys wrote letters, some played billiards or table tennis, while others just dozed in the easy chairs. As soon as the big clock gave us the signal, we trooped off to the dining hall for our eggs and bacon. That's the standard diet served at pre-operational meals. It's the great contribution of the British hen to the Bomber Command Offensive. After supper, we left our thermos flask to be filled with hot coffee and went to our rooms to start the lengthy process of getting ready. First of all, we changed into our heavy woolen underwear and then our blue battle dress. Everything in the pockets had to be cleared out. Letters, bus tickets, pocketbooks, everything. For such innocent articles might give the Germans some surprisingly useful information. Then into the pockets went the amulets, the love tokens, the religious trinkets, the little bits of stuff to be found on the person of every operational flyer. It might be a ring a rabbit's foot, a baby's shoe, a lock of hair, a tiny Bible, a St. Christopher medal or a crucifix, but certainly there was something in every man's pocket. It was not that many believed the mere presence of some such article would fend off a jagged piece of white-hot steel from an exploding shell. No, for most it was just the tangible evidence of the thoughts and love and prayers of someone back at home. The knowledge of that someone's devotion would be a source of great strength in moments of grave danger. So, fortified in body and spirit, we went off to the crew room, 
collecting our navigator's paraphernalia on the way. Here we began to gird ourselves with the multitudinous articles of flying clothing which high altitudes demand. Thick woolen sweaters, heavy leather fur-lined trousers and jackets, flying boots, gauntlets, helmets, oxygen equipment, then the May West life vest, and finally the parachute harness. When the costume was complete, the effect was gargantuan. We hadn't long to wait in the crew room before the transports rumbled to a halt outside. We lugged our parachutes, our thermos flasks and rations, our navigational bags and sextants, and our unwieldy selves to the truck and somehow managed to clamber aboard. It was pretty dark, but we all had our flashlights, and with four or five crews crowded into each transport, we started off for the dispersals. Soon, we could see the rows of tiny red and green lights which indicated where aircraft were marshaled. In with us was the Padre, and as each crew dropped off beside its plane, he had a cheery word and some chewing gum for every member. And a silent prayer, too, I believe. F. Freddy was near the end of the lineup, so we were the last crew to unload from the van. Then away it went, leaving us standing under the stars with our mighty bomber. In a few minutes we should be pounding through the night in its spacious interior. It looked rather awesome. The huge black wings seemed to stretch too far, and the body with its load of destruction assumed such an impossible size that we, who but a few minutes before had been the giants, we seemed to have shrunk into insignificance. On the side of the nose, we could just make out the rows of tiny painted bombs which showed that F. Freddy was a veteran of no mean experience. We still had some time before we were due to start up the engines, but there were certain things each had to do. So, one by one, we climbed the ladder through the hatch and made our way to the various positions. First of all, the intercom that is, the telephone system which, like a party line, connects everyone in the plane, had to be tested. This is the responsibility of the wireless operator. So Huey called up each one in turn, Hear me okay? And the answers all being satisfactory, he went on with the routine check of his radio equipment. Wally, the bomb aimer, was looking over the leads to the camera and seeing that the photo flash and flares were installed properly. Larry was testing the rudder, elevators, and ailerons, and the thousand and one things which pilots check before takeoff. Even Smitty was back there in his little cage, making noises like a rear gunner, and I was spreading maps and charts on the table, putting the various instruments and computators into their proper niches, and generally getting things shipshape in my cabin. Still, being too early when all this was done, we climbed down the ladder and stood talking and smoking a little distance from the plane. This was the worst time of all. Nothing to do but wait. It's just like the boxer before his turn in the ring, or the actor standing in the wings awaiting his cue. Conversation and laughter were forced, a trifle brittle. There was an unnatural calm, an unrealness, a feeling that this was all a horrible dream. Then suddenly, a green rocket shot up from the control tower. That's the signal to start the engines. This is better. Now there's something to do. So back into the plane again, and Wally, being the last one, pulled in the ladder and closed the hatch. I went back to the Astrodome, where I could get a good view of all that was happening. Switches off from the ground crew. And the echo came back. Switches off from Larry. 
contact port. And the reply, contact port. There was a laboring sound as the electric starting motor ground away. Then an uncertain shuddering as the engine responded. Unwillingly at first, but almost immediately, came the strong-throated roars that leapt into vibrant life. Soon after, the starboard engines joined in, and for several minutes they sang a contented duet. After they were properly warm, each engine in turn was run up, tested at full power, the plane meanwhile being held by the brakes and the chocks on the wheels. Terrific air blasts shook the plane so violently that every rivet shuddered but held firm. Everything's okay, said Larry to the intercom, and we knew we could rely on his judgment. He signaled the ground crew to take away the chocks, and a moment later another green rocket was fired. This was the signal for the takeoff to start. From the Astrodome I could see the red and green lights of the other planes, and the first one started moving on to the end of the runway. It had a white light on the tail, and it was fascinating to watch it move down along the stretch, gradually increasing speed, and then slowly rise into the air. Its roar was drowned in the general chorus, most of which happily was kept out by the snug-fitting helmets we wore. As each plane took off, the rest moved up in the queue. At last, there was only one ahead of us, and we watched as it sped down between the rows of lights which bordered the runway and became airborne. Now was our turn. We moved on to the runway and waited for the Aldous lamp signal from the controller. There were a number of figures standing beside the flare path, and as we started forward, they all waved, and we waved back. In a few seconds, we were moving along at full throttle. I watched the lights flash by at ever-increasing speeds. The pull of the many thousand horses in our engines soon had us tearing madly down the flare path, ever faster and faster. Ninety, a hundred, a hundred and ten miles an hour, and then the earth could hold us no longer, and we were free. There's an indescribable feeling of relief when the wheels have made their last contact with the ground, and the furious charging motion gives way to the steady lift of the airstream. The takeoff with a heavily loaded bomber is an anxious time for the crew, and continues to be so until a certain height has been reached. And so, around midnight, often two or three times a week, they were off into the wild blue yonder, or as some called it, a kind of orchestrated hell, where each crew member knew they had more than an average chance to quite suddenly end up touching the face of God, as some called death in the skies over Germany during the Second World War. It was not a thought most air crew wanted to contemplate, but again, it was part of their monotonous official duty to prepare for it by writing what was called their last letter. It was a tradition started during the Great War and carried forward by all Canadian soldiers, sailors, and air crews afterwards. It's the letter no one wants to write, and certainly no one wants to live it. Still, it's another one of those wartime duties that must be done. Here is one such last letter written by RCAF Flight Lieutenant F. Lawrence Freddie Parker, who you just met in the previous reading. London, England, May 17th, 1943. To my family, it has long been my intention to write a last letter to you, but for one reason or another, it has always been postponed. I am leaving instructions in case of my being listed as killed or missing believed killed, which amounts to the same thing, 
This shall be sent to you by registered mail. Although it is still my sincere hope and expectation to be reunited with you after the war, nevertheless, the type of work I am called upon makes it quite obvious that life may be terminated very quickly without warning. Indeed, I have no more right to live, rather much less right to live, than many of those fine chaps now gone, whom I was proud to count as my pals. When I consider that out of twelve of our Georg course who came across together, only five of them are still alive, it brings home all too clearly the uncertainty of life. I know that there is nothing I can do to reduce that uncertainty, and I am content to leave it in God's hands. If my life is spared, I shall try to live in such a way as to justify that sparing. If I am called upon to die, it shall be with the knowledge that I served a just cause and helped to prepare the world for the time when force shall be subjugated to reason and the welfare of mankind as a whole shall be placed above the welfare of individuals or nations. National pride must give way to international understanding. It is going to be very hard after this struggle is over to expel from our minds the bitterness and hatred which is developed towards those who were our enemies. But that is the prerequisite to any sort of international amity. We must consider our vanquished enemies as potential friends. Only thus can the foundation be laid for a world federation. I do not hate Germans. I do not hate Italians. Yet, I have done my best to destroy them and their works, and God knows they have done their best to destroy me. But, after this is over, I must be ready to look upon the individual German, who, with liberal education and meted justice, strongly tempered with mercy, will be able to take his place in a world brotherhood. Hitler's children must learn that they are God's children, and we too must not forget that. It is hard to say farewell to life, especially to a life that has been so pleasant. There is so much to live for, but thank God there is much to die for too. I thank God that I have grown up in a Christian family, that I have been taught the worth of a wholesome belief in God and the faith in a life after this one has ended. I thank God that I have learned the value of temperance, that I have been privileged to have so many good friends, that I have learned to appreciate the beauties of nature and the goodness of an outdoor life, that I have had the benefit of a good and noble father, a generous and understanding mother, and two kind and loving sisters. I have always had the most tender fondness and affection and sincere admiration for my family. My greatest regret is that I may not have the privilege of taking any part in building that fine new world which must rise from the ruins left by this conflict. If, however, my sacrifice and that of the hosts of other young men and women who have died will help to bring about the desire and determination for international understanding, which alone will guarantee a lasting peace, then I am content. And so, farewell.
be brave and keep the faith that God will bring us all together again. I am grateful to you for all your devotion, loving thoughts, and prayers. May God bless and keep you all. Lawrence, son, and brother. Sadly, that registered letter did get delivered before the end of the Second World War. F. Lawrence Freddie Parker is one of the people we want you to remember this Remembrance Day. You may not know him, but we know he was a young Canadian who went off to war and who is worth knowing, even if only posthumously. Before we end today's show, we want to leave you with one final reading, and ironically, it doesn't come from the Second World War. It's a poem written by William Butler Yeats in 1919 at the end of the war to end all wars. We think it's worth remembering the next time you meet any veteran, soldier, sailor, aircrew, ward nurse, or even a young woman who writes to her brother from Cross Lake. It's a sentiment that sadly gets relearned by those innocent young men and women who go off to every war. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight I do not hate. Those that I guard I do not love. My country is Kiltartan Cross. My countrymen Kiltartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public man nor cheering crowds. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath. A waste of breath, the years behind, in balance with this life this death. We hope you enjoyed today's show and we hope you take the time to say hello to one or more of our local veterans. Drop by the Legion and let them know just how much you appreciate them for being, well, who they are and commend them for their service. I'm Kristen Marchand and for Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Brian Peterson, Lynn Stewart, Mark Wormke and our producer Barry Conway, have a great Remembrance Day. Good day and God bless.